Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, as I bow my head before you in prayer this morning, I'm conscious that uh, as I'm sitting down getting ready to speak um, at Calvary Chapel, Portsmouth, Leon is getting up to preach for the very first time. Uh, and I just want to ask, Lord, for your special anointing upon Leon as he comes to share your word this morning, as indeed I pray for your anointing upon myself. That we, Lord, we would both deliver a living word that speaks into the hearts and the minds of, of those who hear. That it would serve to not only nourish us, but encourage and equip us to be able to serve you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, can you open up your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges and chapter 11. Sunday mornings when I'm teaching, we're going through the book of Judges. Uh, we've gone through eight Judges. This morning we're going to hit judge number nine, Jephthah. Jephthah, the ninth judge. Judges 11 verses 1 to 40. And uh, let's launch straight in and we're going to start looking at uh, Jephthah, the outcast, verses 1 to 3. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valour, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead begot Jephthah. Now, uh, right off, Jephthah was not your average man. There in verse one, we read he was a mighty man of valour. He was exceptional. He would be the star athlete at school. He would be the top goal scorer in football. When you're in a tight spot, the sort of guy that you want is Jephthah uh, covering your back. A mighty man of valour. And, you know, he's not he's not the only mighty man of valour mentioned in scripture. Uh, we have Joshua. Uh, and uh, we have Naaman of Syria, we have Jeroboam in 1 Kings, and we have a man called Eliada in 2 Chronicles. And it seems as if uh, you're a mighty man of valour, you're invariably leading a, a victorious army. And Jephthah would prove no less victorious in his life. He was a man of exceptional ability and accomplishments. But alas, he had some baggage. He was the son of a harlot, we are told. And that's the sort of moniker that would carry a terrible stigma. It's the one part of your life you'd want to keep secret. You wouldn't want anybody knowing that part of your history. And yet Jephthah would have had to carry this his whole life. Whenever Jephthah was mentioned uh, in conversation, it's be sure that not far after that, the fact that his mother was a prostitute would follow. It would be the second thing on everyone's lips where he's concerned. So they'd be saying, wow, Jephthah killed it in that football game. What, the son of the whore? Yeah, Jephthah. Wow, look at that son of a harlot go, they'd say. And wherever Jephthah went, whatever he did, the ignominy of his birth would not be far from him. Now, it was no, through no fault of his own that Jephthah had this stigma, of course, and no child should have to carry the blame for something their parents did. No child should be rejected for the things outside their control, the circumstances of their birth. And yet society is often so very cruel, isn't it? It favours those who come from noble birth and it fails to, uh, fails to acknowledge those who come from an ignoble birth. Uh, but praise God, Romans 2 verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. The Lord is not looking at your parents. He is not looking at your upbringing or your station in life. He is looking at you. He is looking 
at your heart. You know, the whole of society may have chosen against Jephthah, but the Lord said, this is the man for me. This is the man I have chosen. This is the man I can work with because he saw his heart. And the Lord has a calling for you. He has a purpose and a work for everybody here this morning. And it's not based on merit, innate worthiness or a smashing CV. He looks at the heart and he says, I can use a man like that. I can use a woman like that. God is looking for someone just like you this morning. Now, Jephthah clearly faced adversity and uh, adversity births some of the most successful people in history. History is absolutely littered with great leaders who became great because they had to battle with some adversity in their younger life. I was reading about Sylvester Stallone. When he was born, forceps had to be used in the birth and it severed a nerve in his face. And as a result, it's, uh, he's got partial paralysis in his face, leading to a droop in his mouth and a slur in his speech. But that didn't stop him. That adversity uh, caused him to fight on. And we know that he's roped and uh, starred in many films, winning three Oscars. So adversity helped that man. Then you've got Benjamin Franklin. He dropped out of school, aged 10, and uh, had to work in indentured service to be able to support his 16 siblings. But he read voraciously and he worked hard and he became one of America's founding fathers. Adversity strengthened him and helped him. Then, of course, you've got somebody like Richard Branson, who suffers from dyslexia and had bad grades at school. Yet he worked hard and is now the fourth richest person in the UK. And no doubt in my mind that Jephthah had to grow up a fighter to be able to survive because of his adversity. Kind of reminds me of that song by uh, Johnny Cash, A Boy Named Sue. Do you know that song? Uh, a father names his son Sue. And as a result, um, uh, every, every corner of his life, he has to fight because he gets the mickey taken out of him. And he gets to he learns to fight. He gets to kick and he learns to defend himself. But he becomes a survivor and he and he becomes stronger because of adversity. And I kind of feel as if uh, Jephthah is like that, uh, a boy named Sue. Anyway, verse two, Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Jephthah's father, Gilead, brought his son into the family home and raised him along with his wife's sons. Now, how she felt about this, we're not told, but it must have been tough knowing that your husband had slept with another woman and then brought the fruit of that union into the family home. But uh, Gilead did right by the son and gave him the best, best start he could in life. But clearly his half-brothers didn't care for him and he was probably derided his entire childhood. Now, we're not told this in this verse, but I suspect Gilead died because uh, the sons who are now of age drive the bastard son out of the home, disinheriting him at the same time. Little did they know that they were actually rejecting their future judge and deliverer. Now, why did God allow this to happen? Why did he allow such rejection, such hurt, such unfair treatment 
in this man's life. Well, we've already seen how adversity can prepare a person to be more successful later on in life. And I believe God was developing character in this man's life through the adversity. Any man that God wants to use, he first breaks that man. Typically, the way God breaks a person is through hardship. And then once a person or a, or a man is broken, he can then be built back up by God and equipped by the Lord to be used. And all this while, God is working in the background in Jephthah's life. And indeed, if you're going through hardship, if you're going through adversity and you can't see the benefit, what's being accomplished or achieved through this, be sure that while you can't see the short term benefits, God has a long term plan and a purpose behind all that is working in your life. So we see Jephthah's fl flight in verse three. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So unloved, cast out, Jephthah flees to Tob. And Tob is east of Gilead. So you've got, the, uh, you've got the Jordan River. Gilead is part of the territory of Manasseh on the uh, Transjordan side, on the east side of um, uh, Israel. And then just beyond that, you've got Syria. And that is where, or modern day Syria, and that is where Tob is. And it was a back country. It was mountains. There were very few dwellings. It was a sort of place outlaws would run to and take refuge in. It was a haunt for outlaws. And uh, the sort of place a man like Jephthah would meet worthless men. And indeed, we read worthless men banded together with Jephthah. It was the Wild West in the time of Judges, the wild frontier. And into this world steps Jephthah with a band of men at his side. And now the my translation says that uh, uh, they banded together with Jephthah and they went out raiding with him. But that word raiding is in italics. That tells me that word is not there in the original manuscript. So what it should really read is they went out with him. And if you look into the Hebrew, the, the emphasis within that phrase is a sense of delivering. I.e. Jephthah went out with a band of men and they got involved in delivering people. So what we've got here is that Jephthah became Yul Brynner in the Magnificent Seven. He became Clint Eastwood from a fistful of dollars. He gathered a motley crew together and he went out sorting the problems and conflicts in that area, which would involve fighting Ammonites and Jews alike to bring a form of Wild West justice. He was a gun for hire, a problem solver. So if a group of outlaws came causing problems to a small settlement, who you get, what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? You're going to dial 0800 Jephthah. And here comes a gun-toting guy with his band of not-so-worthless men to sort out the problem for a price. And through this, Jephthah, the mighty man of valour, gets a reputation for himself. And word gets out. If you've got a problem, no one else can help. And if you can find him, Maybe you can hire the J team. So through all this, God is at work preparing a man for a calling. And through all of these experience here in the wild west of Tob, uh, we have uh, God 
teaching Jephthah military strategy, leadership skills, the art of warfare, the ability to negotiate and how to deal with strong and difficult men. And all these skills will be able to come back into play later on in Jephthah's life. And how often does God take a nobody out of a nowhere to train them to be someone in the Lord? That's what he did with Moses when he took him out to Midian, trained him, took him to nowhere to train him to become someone. That's what he did with David in the fields with his sheep. That's what he did with Paul when he took him to Arabia. And that's what he did with Jephthah when he went to Tob. Took him, took a some, nobody out to nowhere to make him a someone. And maybe you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, doing no good at this moment in time. But maybe, just maybe, God has his hand on your life and is getting you ready for something too. Let's go on to our next section. Uh, verse four. Now it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. Now, this is picking up the thread where we left off in Judges chapter 10, where the people of Ammon invaded and oppressed the children of Israel and that Israel cry out to the Lord for a deliverer. In Judges 10 verse 6, we read uh, last time, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that phrase is a marker for the reader. Each time that phrase, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, is uh, mentioned in the book of Judges, it indicates a successive cycle of oppression and deliverance that, that uh, the Israelites go into. And seven times in the book of Judges, we are told Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so during the 300 plus years of history covered by the period of Judges, Israel passes through seven cycles of oppression and deliverance, which would work like um, Israel were in relationship with the Lord, they were serving the Lord, but then they would go into a place of disobedience. I, Israel would forsake the Lord and Israel would start serving foreign deities. As a consequence, God would take them into a place of discipline where Israel is oppressed by an external nation. And then out of that uh, at discipline and the distress that it would cause, Israel would cry out to the Lord with a cry of repentance. And as a result, God would raise up a deliverer and... Uh, a judge that would come and defeat that a force and then become God's government in that country and thus relationship with God would be restored. But that would only survive for a period of time. Once the judge had died, Israel would slip back into disobedience and the cycle would happen again. And seven times in that 300 year period would Israel go through that cycle. And so here in Judges 11, Israel has entered the sixth cycle of discipline. Israel has done evil in the sight of the Lord again. Israel has begun to serve other gods again. Israel has provoked the anger of the Lord again. And so the Lord has brought a nation against his people to oppress them again. And this is no light oppression. The Ammonites have been invading and raiding for 18 years. Now Ammon was on the east of the Transjordan tribes of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh. And um, so right on the border where uh, kind of Manasseh came to an end, uh, Ammon would start. And it was round about that area that Tob was where Jephthah was you know, executing his Wild West justice. And uh, Ammon had not only come into those eastern tribes, 
They'd crossed over the Jordan and were now going into Judah and Benjamin and into the house of Ephraim. And Israel was severely distressed, we read in Judges 10 verse 9 last time. And so if there's something strange in your neighbourhood, who are you going to call? It's Jephthah. Verses 5 and 6. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Now this is a good call. Jephthah has been dwelling east of Manasseh, right on the border of Ammon. The Ammonites would have been aware of the fame and the exploits of this Wild West hero. And uh, as their commander of the armies of Israel, the children of Israel would have someone who would be a formidable foe in the eyes of their enemies. But Jephthah has got a beef that he wants to air, and rightly so, I might add. We read there in verse 7, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now, when Jephthah first came to the children of Israel, they didn't want anything to do with him. They rejected him. They chased him out of his father's house and he became an outcast. But now that Israel is in a place of oppression and tribulation, they've changed their tune. They see in Jephthah something that they had not seen before. They no longer see the son of a harlot. They see a deliverer and a saviour. And one can easily identify with Jephthah's beef. People only want him when he has something to give. So he highlights the hypocrisy and double standards of his brethren. Now, how, do, is, how does Israel answer this uh, accusation? It's the wrong way around. How does Israel answer this accusation? Well, we read there in verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is a Oh, no, this is a pretty limp-wristed, spineless response, if you ask me. There's no acknowledgement of treating Jephthah in an unjust or unfair way. There's no apology or recognition of doing Jephthah wrong. They're basically saying, look, you're the man for the job, and you're the only one for the job. You were made to do this. And then they try to sweeten the deal by saying, we'll make you our head and our chief. And the truth of the matter is, he probably should have occupied that role of head and chief in the first place anyway. It was probably his right uh, after the death of his father. And so the Gileadites are using the age-old tactics of sucking up and offering him a golden hello. Come and join us and we'll make you our head. But you know what? Jephthah is not so easily bought. He wants some guarantees. And you know what? Who can blame him? Verse 9. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? If I am your commander today, will you really make me your head tomorrow? Can I really trust you in this? Okay, I'll go and fight them for you, but will you make me your head? 
come on, you guys have got bad form. I need some guarantee here, guys. So verse 10. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. So the elders of Gilead provide Jephthah with the most solemn vow they are able to. They call the Lord God to be a witness in their vow. And Jephthah, it appears, is finally satisfied and yields to their request. And so together they leave Tob and they head for Mizpah. So verse 11. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, the fact that they go to Mizpah, I believe, is significant. Now, you might not recognise that name Mizpah, but it was previously mentioned in Genesis chapter 31 and in verses 43 to 55. There in Genesis 31, Mizpah was the place where a covenant was made between Laban and Jacob. And there's a parallel between Laban, uh, uh, Jacob and Jephthah and Gilead. You see, Laban had dealt treacherously with Jacob. Jacob had fled and then Laban pursued Jacob. But much the same as the Gileadites had dealt treacherously with Jephthah, Jephthah had fled and then the Gileadites later pursued Jephthah. Laban and Jacob then made a covenant at Mizpah that defined their relationship, both present and future. And it would appear that the elders of Gilead and Jephthah seemingly make a covenant that defines their relationship, both present and future. This is a covenant made before the Lord. So that being settled, uh, his headship confirmed, uh, Jephthah takes on the role of the commander of the armies of Israel. And instead of launching straight into um, a, a military offence, uh, Jephthah's learnt a thing or two in the time he's been away uh, as in his role as a Wild West problem solver. And he has learned that diplomacy often wins over conflict. So Jephthah's first uh, decides to send a diplomatic party, um, a delegation to Ammon to talk to them. We read there in verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me in my land? Now if we read this verse 12 closely, it is a strongly worded communication. Jephthah is calling the king of Ammon to account, saying, What have you against me? Then, second of all, Jephthah is actually making it personal. You have come against me. In my land, he says. Now, Jephthah is letting the uh, people of, uh, of Ammon know who they are up against. You see, the king of Ammon is no longer just dealing with the same wimpy Gileadites that he has been walking rough trod over for the last 18 years. You're now facing Jephthah, the terror of Tob, the man who was the gunslinger of the east, the man who uh, sorted out all the problems. And so the king, of, uh, uh, the king of Ammon has a force to be reckoned with. So we read on in verse 13. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they come up out, came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So the king of Ammon starts off by playing nicely with the diplomatic solution. 
Like Jephthah, he plays hardball, but he lets it be known that this is all about land. Israel took away my land, he says. That's why we're invading. That's why we're causing these problems, because Israel took away my land. And he lays out his terms for peace. Now, therefore, restore those lands peaceably. Now, there is nothing new underneath the sun, is there? There has always been land disputes and border disputes and accusations of illegal occupation of land in the Middle East by Israel. And uh, what we see happening here is no different to what we see happening in uh, Israel today. But uh, it's the Palestinians today that are accusing uh, Israel of having land illegally and uh, wanting uh, land back and uh, disputing borders. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail about this, but the Palestinians aren't really a proper people. Um, if you look back, the Palestinians are actually Jordanian Arabs. And uh, the area that is covered by modern day Jordan is the area that was formerly occupied by Edom, by Moab, and would you believe Ammon. And so it's the same people today arguing about the same borders that uh, was being argued about all the way back in Jephthah. And, uh, you know, our God is not a God of the two state solution. The Bible is very clear. God has a plan for Israel and that plan is one state and that state is to belong to Israel. And so God is not going to yield. And we're going to see here that Jephthah is not going to yield either. Let's read verses 14 to 17. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the kings of, uh, sorry, to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel uh, sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. Uh-oh. Jephthah knows his history and he's having none of it. He's not going to get steamrolled into giving up land on for a false pretense. So Jephthah uh, puts the king of Ammon straight. Interestingly, he, he, put, he links Moab and Ammon together here in those verses. He says Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. Moab and Ammon are both the sons of Lot by his two daughters. They are near neighbours and they share the same God, Chemos. And when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, he brought them first by way of Mount Horeb in modern day Arabia. Then he brought them to Kadesh Barnea. That is where Moses sent out the 12 spies who brought back a bad report. Israel then tried to move from Kadesh Barnea, um, but they couldn't get through Edom and Moab refused safe passage as well. So Israel ended up spending 38 years in the area of Kadesh Barnea. Then in verse 18, we read, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east of uh, east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the land of, Ar of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was at the border. Was at the border of Arnon. So Israel journeyed around Edom and around Moab, and but and they wanted to get into the promised land. 
but they did not trespass the borders of these countries that have forbid them uh, entry. And the river Arnon creates a natural border for Moab, making it hard to do so. But then they come to the land of the Amorites. And we read in verse 19 to 22, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. Israel tried to forge a, a peaceful route to the land promised to them by the Lord. Edom was an obstacle, so they circumnavigated round. Moab was an obstacle. So they circumnavigated round. The Amorites were an obstacle, but they launched an attack fronted by their king, Sihon. But the Lord gave Israel a victory over Sihon and the Amorites, who were the aggressors. And thus Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites by right of conquest. Amorites, not Ammonites, Amorites. So the land of the Amorites had been formally occupied by the Ammonites. But the Amorites had conquered the Ammonites fair and square and taken the land for themselves. So when Israel took possession of the land, there was no conflict with Ammon. There was no possession of the land of Ammon. It was um, Amorite land at the time. And what is important to know is that God had long held the Amorites in reserve for judgment since the days of Abraham. When Israel came to their borders, they were God's instrument of judgment. Thus it was the Lord who fought for Israel, and it was the Lord that gave that land to Israel. So verses 23 and 24. So now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Uh, should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord your, our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. Now this is fighting talk. First of all, Jephthah states that it is the God of Israel that has given them this land. Hence, they have no right over it. Second of all, Jephthah states that you only get what your God gives you. Hence, it's Chemos you should appeal to, not to me. If you've got such a great God, why don't you get to appeal to him and get him to give you some land? And of course, inherent in this is the assertion that uh, that uh, Chemosh is weaker than Yahweh. My God's bigger than your God. But of course, this is not just a, a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle. And the gauntlet is laid down. If you think your God is strong enough to give you the land, then let him do it. Come on, if you think you're hard enough, basically. So verses 25 and 26 uh, and now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aror and its villages and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? In other words, excuse me, Mr. King of Ammon. We've been here 300 years. What's up with you kicking up a fuss now? You're a bit late to the party, aren't you? 
Jephthah highlights the hypocrisy of claiming land after it has been in the possession of Israel for over 300 years, for which they have not staked a claim until now. Jephthah also calls Moab as a witness to his case, because Moab had also had land taken from them by the Amorites, and that land was now in the hands of Israel as a result of their defeat of Sihon. Yet Moab haven't complained. Why then do you complain? So really, Jephthah's diplomacy comes to an end with this statement in verse 27. Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. How dare you suggest Israel is at fault in this matter? We haven't wronged you. You've wronged us by invading us these past 18 years. And then Jephthah invokes God to be the judge and the arbiter in this matter, basically saying to the king of Ammon, put up or shut up. And this is the response he gets in verse 28. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Oh, no surprises there. It's war. Clear and simple. So let's start looking at this war. Jephthah the warrior. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. Now, this is the sign of God's chosen man. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And it is from that anointing the power is granted to execute God's will. And this is the reason that Jephthah is going to secure a victory over the Ammonites. Not because he has been living as a gun for hire for the last however many years. Not because he has grown tough in the light of the rejection of his brethren. Not because he has a band of trained men behind him. But because he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. And if you want victory in your life, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be walking in the Spirit. And now we come to the bit that everybody knows about. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up a burnt offering. Now, we come to that part that everybody knows about, uh, his vow to the Lord. And, you know, on, on the surface, it's a good intentioned vow uh, that upon God securing a victory for Israel against Ammon, Jephthah promises to sacrifice whatever comes out of his house when he gets back home. And in those days, a house would typically have a barn area with the family dwelling above it. So when you would get back home, the first thing that you would see is the animals before you saw your family. So it was a reasonable vow to make. The thing you need to recognise is this vow was completely unnecessary. The Lord had raised up Jephthah for this task. He had anointed him for this battle. The victory was sure. And so what we see in this vow and what we see in Jephthah is two things. The first is a lack of the knowledge of God. And the second is a move from grace to works. Let's look at this lack of the knowledge of God. Israel as a nation had turned away from God, which meant that Israel had turned away from the word of God. And the two are synonymous. When a Christian turns away from the word of God, it's because they have turned away from the God 
of the word. The two go together. Scripture was neglected and unread and people largely became ignorant of what it said. There was only a half knowledge of God in the land. Culturally, they were the, the people were godly, but spiritually they were pagan. The environment very much like we are in today. You know, culturally we're Christian, but spiritually as a nation we are pagan. We have some awareness as a nation of God, but that knowledge of God is very faulty. And that's very much what the climate of Israel was like at this time. And this is true of Jephthah as well. He has an awareness of God. He has, he has a, a commitment to God, but his knowledge of God is faulty, which is why he makes such a foolish vow and has a bearing upon things later upon. But what it also shows us is a move from grace to works. In Jephthah's vow, we see a man trying to make a deal with God. He starts by saying, if you will, and he ends by saying, and I will. This represents making a bargain with God. If you do this, Lord, I will do that. And uh, let me make it clear, you do not make a bargain with God. If any of you is inclined to ever do this sort of thing with God, it is not the way to do it. He is the Lord and he is the senior partner in our relationship with him, which means he sets the terms, not us. We don't make bargains with God. And really what this type of deal or bargain represents is Jephthah moving from grace into works, moving from a reliance by faith on the Lord's provision and goodness to a reliance upon your service being the means by which we secure God's favour. This is the core of man-made religion, us trying to secure God's favour on the basis of things that we do or say. And, and what is a shame about this is that it was completely unnecessary. The spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. He already had the favour of the Lord. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we do not need to make a deal with God. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And when you consider the Lord has said to us in his word, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, there is no bargain that we can make that doesn't fall short of that promise of God. We already have exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. There's no bargain that we can make that is better than what God has already given to us. So verses 32 and 33. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them and the Lord delivered them into his hands and he defeated them from Aror as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Abel Keramim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Now here is the Lord doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon I, he stepped forward in faith and the Lord delivered them into his hands. The Lord honoured that faith with victory. And, you know, to Israel at this time, this is the most important aspect of everything that's happened. But to our text before us this morning, this is almost a subplot. It's a, it's a guaranteed certainty that only warrants the slightest mention. Two verses. 18 years of hurt over in two verses. Surely this is a picture of the repentant sinner moving towards the Lord in faith. In a moment of in a moment, a victory is secured as sin is forgiven. Innumerable years of hurt 
are washed away in the sea of God's forgiveness. That's the damaging effect of sin. We can live in so much pain for such long, long time, but one step of faith towards God and he gives us victory over sin. Hallelujah. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Daddy's home. Here comes a one-woman victory parade. She's all full of joy and happiness, banging a tambourine, dancing, rejoicing to see her father come back home victorious. But has ever such a happy sight brought such sorrow and pain? In a world where Jephthah has known rejection and loss, loneliness and isolation, his daughter has been a supreme comfort. And now that comfort is crushed in a heartbeat. 1 Corinthians 15 says death uh, has been swallowed up in victory, but now we've seen victory being swallowed up in death. And we read in verses 35 and 36, And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. As the pain of what has befallen Jephthah tore his heart, so he tore the clothes on his back, and he cries out in gut-wrenching sorrow, Alas, my daughter! Now the text doesn't explicitly record Jephthah telling his daughter the nature of his vow. However, when the text reads, I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it, I suspect that is what he discloses. The, uh, that's when he discloses the details to his only child. And the innocence, the purity of spirit, the submissive will, the love of his daughter to her father is incredible because she says, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. God, it breaks your heart, doesn't it? Because both Jephthah and his daughter demonstrate two things. A sincere devotion to God, but an absence of the full knowledge of the word of God. You know, the Bible does not condone or endorse human sacrifice. But what does Hosea 4.6 say? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so the question arises, did Jephthah sacrifice his daughter? Verses 37 to 40 reads, And then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now I should point out there are two schools of thought about what happened. The first school is that she was sacrificed, as the text says. He carried out his vow with, with her, which uh, he had vowed. And then the second school of thought is that she lived a perpetual virginity in in service to God, as the text says, she knew no man. 
Now, for those who cannot stomach the thought of something so horrific as a father sacrificing his daughter to God as a burnt offering, Leviticus 27 verses 1 to 8 creates a loophole where a person's life may be redeemed for a price. Yet Jephthah's poor Bible knowledge on human sacrifice casts serious doubt on whether he would have been familiar with this part of the Mosaic law. Exodus 38 verse 8 shows us that there was an order of devoted women that served in the tabernacle. It is suggested that perhaps she lived out the rest of her days serving at the tabernacle. But there is nothing to suggest that these people serving in the tabernacle were perpetual virgins. That's more of a pagan practice. I might point you towards Josephus uh, in his Antiquities of the Jews, book five, which says, Accordingly, when that time was over, he sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering, offering such an oblation as was neither conformable to the law nor acceptable to God, not weighing with himself what opinion the hearers would have of such a practice. So Josephus, the Roman historian, asserts that he did actually go ahead and offer his daughter as a burnt offering. And uh, I've got to ask the question, would a customer arise uh, where the daughters of Israel lamented the daughter of Jephthah if she'd simply engaged in a life of uh, tabernacle service in a kind of nun-type format? Uh, something that clearly was not unique to just one woman. Well, I think in truth the, the court is out because the biblical account leaves the matter somewhat open. But my personal conviction, having looked and studied this, is that Jephthah, against all odds, sacrificed his daughter and then lived the rest of his life haunted by his rash vow. And if this is the case, then it serves to illustrate the age of darkness that Israel lived in. The depths of depravity a society who had abandoned the word of God can fall to. And it serves to warn us of our society and where we are sinking to if we abandon the word of God. Well, we have abandoned the word of God. There's no two. There's no doubt about the matter, really, is there? And so do we close our study on such a, an ambiguous and, and sombre note? Well, no, we don't, because the Bible does not close the account of Jephthah on such a, an ambiguous and sombre note. Because his last mention in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. There in Hebrews 11, verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel the prophets. Here we see the last word of Jephthah. Is not a man who made a foolish vow due to poor Bible knowledge, but of a man of God who is heralded, heralded as a hero of faith. How do we redeem this account for ourselves this morning? What benefit can we draw from it for ourselves? Well, there's three things I'd like to say in closing. The first is that Jephthah is a type of Jesus Christ. Typology is a branch of biblical exegesis where people and events drawn from the Old Testament are recognised to be foreshadows or a pattern of Jesus and his ministry in the New Testament. And one comp uh, common type is that of the rejected deliverer. That is, if you look at Joseph, for example, son of David, he was rejected by his brothers when he first came to them. And the Lord brought hardship and affliction on the children of Israel. Then the brothers come to Joseph a second time out of their affliction and Joseph rises up to be their deliverer. Moses was rejected by Israel when he first came to them. 
For the Lord brought hardship and affliction on the children of Israel through Egyptian slavery. So Israel returned to Moses upon his second coming and Moses rises up to be their deliverer. This foreshadows Jesus Christ, who was rejected by Jesus Christ when he first came to them. We saw that just this morning in Sunday school. And the Lord will bring hardship and affliction on Israel during the Great Tribulation. But Israel will return to Jesus upon his second coming and Jesus will rise up to be their deliverer. And that's exactly the type that we see in Jephthah. He's a type of Jesus because Jesus, because he was rejected by his Israeli brothers when he first came to them. The Lord brought hardship and affliction upon Israel. And so Israel came to Jephthah upon his second coming. And then Jephthah raised up to be a deliverer for Israel. So there's hope for Jephthah because he's a picture of Jesus Christ. The second thought that comes to my mind is something that I heard A.W. Tozer talk about one time. A.W. Tozer had six sons and one daughter. And uh, I heard him say one time that uh, bringing up six sons was like bringing up a herd of buffalo. Uh, But his daughter was the child of his old age, the youngest of his children. She was his sweetheart, the apple of his eye. And came the day when she felt the call of God on her life to go serve in the missionary field. And Tozer had a battle on his hands, in his heart, because in the natural he didn't want to let his daughter go. Yet he had to die to himself and let her go. He had to sacrifice his daughter in the service of the Lord. And we here who are parents, we are stewards of our children for some 18 years. Then we need to be able to let set our children free to serve the Lord. Are we willing to sacrifice our children in the service of God? And then finally, in that last passage uh, that we read, or last verse that we read in Hebrews, uh, Jephthah, you know, went from a place of his greatest victory, didn't he? Um, On the day of his greatest victory, he went to the place of his greatest failure. And have you ever felt like, like that? You've been on fire for the Lord, accomplished something fantastic for Jesus. and The very next day you trip up and fall into the blackest sin and defeat. Yes, Jephthah was amazingly stupid, but are we any less stupid? Are we any less prone to make a big mess of our relationship with God? But you know what's more amazing than the stupidity of Jephthah? It's the grace and the mercy of God. In the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, we see the grotesque sin of Jephthah. In the New Testament, under the law of grace, There is no record of his sin, just a record of his faith. Under the Mosaic Covenant, Jephthah's sin is laid open and bare for all to see. His stupidity, his foolishness, his darkest moment is on show for all to witness. But under the New Covenant, there is no evidence of Jephthah's sin. It is completely washed away. The message of Jephthah is simply this. No matter how great your sin... No matter the depths of depravity you have fallen in your darkest hour, no matter what damage and hurt your sin has caused, it can all be forgiven and washed away in the blood of Jesus. His love in your life is like you have never sinned. The record is set straight. There is no record of wrong. There is only the record of your faith. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen. 
Father God, we thank you for your tremendous mercy in our lives, that you cover our sin, you cleanse our sin, there is no record of wrong. We thank you, Lord, that we live under the covenant of grace, the covenant of your mercy, and that no matter what our sin, it is completely removed in Jesus. Help us to be people of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, that move forward in obedience to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.